be the first to wish you Merry Christmas for next year. Huh? Bet you hadn't got a Christmas <laughs> greeting that one. We're in, uh, we're going to look at Exodus 1, verses 6 through 14. We've just finished the book of Exodus. But it would be appropriate, I think, for us to reflect upon why Israel needed to leave Egypt. Egypt has been that incubator for growth, uh, for multiplying Israel into uh, millions, actually. Jacob went down into Egypt as a family of 70, and but 400 years later, they have multiplied into several million. Israel is this huge workforce, this skilled labor pool that has caused Egypt to prosper. And Egypt has prospered greatly. Egypt, at the time of Moses, at the time of the Exodus, is perhaps the most powerful nation in the world, or at least in that part of the world. And you would think, well, Israel if they're part of this great nation, they have benefited along with the Egyptians with all of their fortunes, with all of their wealth. But on the contrary, a new pharaoh, a new king, who was not familiar with Joseph, not familiar with how Joseph delivered Egypt through their seven uh, dreadful years of drought, but this new king is now in power. But it's been 400 years since, since Joseph was over Egypt. And the lessons of God's deliverance, well, they're lost. They're no longer remembered by this new Pharaoh. So let's look at uh, chapter 1 of Exodus, and we'll just read several verses there. Exodus 1, verse 6. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were very fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it happen, happens in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities of Python and Ramses. But these, but thee, but the more, excuse me, they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. And all their service in which they made them serve was with rigor or with hardness. Pharaoh... Uh, was looked upon by his people as a god. But he's afraid of this multitude that lives in his nation, Israel. Israel has become more numerous 
than the Egyptians. And that's interesting because the nation of Israel today is a democracy. And they have concerns about the growing population of the Arabs and other non-Jewish people in their nation. Because Israel is a democracy, all the people that are born in Israel are natural citizens who have voting rights. And the non-Jewish population is growing much faster than the Jewish population in Israel. So if this trend continues within a few years, the Jews will be a minority in their own nation. The entire population of Jews worldwide is about 15 million. But only half of these live in Israel. And this is a real dilemma for Israel today. But you know, we here in the United States, we're facing similar crises uh, politically. Morality is not a popular vote in America anymore. More and more states are passing laws that give the right to same-sex marriages. Marijuana is becoming legal in many states, well, at least in Colorado and Oregon. <laughs> Euthanasia is uh, also growing in popularity. Abortion. Now that we have a majority of Republicans in the House and Senate, abortion will be a thing of the past. Not really. <laughs> there is a growing trend among Republicans not to make abortion an issue at the election box. There's one thing about our politicians here in the United States. They love to be reelected. And so they sell out to be reelected. And abortion, as sinful as it is, the majority of the voters want it. And that's a sad commentary on the United States. So it isn't only Egypt that has gone through a leadership transformation. Our president, President Obama, he, he scares a lot of people because he simply brings change. For no other reason, he frightens people with change. But the new pharaoh, he wants to secure his power over the children of Israel. And so he tells the people, let us deal wisely with this multitude that in the event of war, Israel joins our enemies. Pharaoh considers it wise to inflict, to bring hardship upon Israel. And so Pharaoh, he sets hard taskmasters over Israel, afflicting them with heavy burdens of labor, requiring the Israelis to build two supply cities, which control the resources of food and other necessities, but there's one thing that happens here. The more Egypt afflicts Israel, the more they multiply. 
which in turn brings about more hard labor, more slavery. All right, fast forward about 1,500 years, and you have the early church, the early Christian church. After the day of Pentecost, the church was multiplying greatly. Then we see Satan bring persecution to the church. Saul, soon to be the apostle Paul, was one of the main persecutors. The results was the church was scattered, and guess what? Multiplied greatly. Persecution brought multiplication of the Jews in Egypt. Persecution brought multiplication of the growth in the early church. Now, let me ask you, what do you think persecution of the Christians today will bring in today's world? I recently read some, uh, a figure that shocked me, and it was supposedly a correct figure. 84,000 people a day turn to Christ. What? 84,000 a day? That's a bunch of folks, by the way. In my humble opinion, though, persecution will first bring a separation. But I think it's going to be a healthy separation between believers and so-called believers. I have more difficulty with those who claim to be a Christian and aren't than those who make no such claims. If you're a Christian, I want you to act like a Christian. If That's just my little world. Many supposedly Christians and their teachers promote and write books, sell DVDs, telling you how to be all you can be. Learn to love yourself as if we didn't already. Discover that good inner person that you already are. Have you found out you're really a good guy? Huh? <laughs> After all, you're a child of the king. You deserve the prosperity. You claim that prosperity because it's out there. To me, prosperity doctrine only attempts to place God as my servant, not me as his servant. And that's all it is. That's all prosperity teaching is. To me, it's a false gospel, or at least a false doctrine. Therefore, most assuredly, I think we can look for a separation between Bible-believing Christians and those who claim to be Christians simply for gain. As a true Christian, as a Bible-believing Christian, you can expect, I tell you right now, you can expect life at times to be difficult. It's just the truth. It has been said that of trials, and we all go through them, that you're either in a trial, going into a trial, or coming out of a trial, part of a Christian's life. <laughs> you know why? God is preparing us for heaven, preparing us to be with him eternally. 
And so guess what? He's got to knock off some sharp edges. <laughs> but we are allowed to look back at Israel. Part of the reason their history is recorded is we're to look back at them and learn. But as we look back at Pharaoh... Uh, as we look back at the New Testament church during Paul's day, it makes us consider, what about the church today? The church today, by all the polls that I can read, over half, that's over 50% of professing Christians, think their good works give them a right standing with God. Over half of Christians really believe that. So in my humble opinion of the American Christians, we will go through a separation. We must go through a separation. Whether you're a Bible-believing saint or you ain't, you will be separated. But what we have that is pulling a Christian that is perhaps sitting on the fence is those that teach vain philosophies of man. Paul, near the end of his life, he wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Let me read the two verses to you. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul tells us, he's right up front, all scripture, the good promises, those faithful promises, the warnings to depart from sinful practice, are all profitable for Christians. Scripture gives us the requirements that we should study for living a Christian life. We're to study God's Word. We're to know what God says about our life and about our behavior. God's word corrects us. It reproves us. It guides us to what? Righteousness. So that we will not be deceived by the modern philosophies of man. And they are clever. Maybe you're like me. I grow awful weary of non-believers trying to tell me or tell a Christian how they should live. Don't that just rub you the wrong way? <laughs> the Oprahs and others who place themselves above God's word set themselves above the authority of God's word. Those who promote it's okay to live your life any way you please as long as you're not hurting someone else. Recently, my daughter served on a, a, a jury, and there was a convicted murderer, a confessed, I should say, murderer. The trial was over. They found him guilty of murder. But there was one lady on the jury 
that did not want to be part of sending this man to jail. She thought that would be wrong. A convicted murderer, a confessed murderer, and she didn't want to be part of sending him to jail. Wow. Paul tells us, and when he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Scripture thoroughly equips us for good works that we Christians are to walk in. Part of the good works is holding a standard, a standard of righteousness. So let me get you to turn to 2 Timothy 4, and I'll read five verses. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. We have Paul. He's uh, actually nearing the end of his life. And so it's interesting to read what anybody has to say as they realize their life is just about over. 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul, he charges us as believers, preach the word in season and out. It's every Christian's responsibility to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We are to be persuasive if necessary. We are to rebuke false heresies. We are to exhort or to encourage patiently the truth of God's word. Verse 3 tells us, For the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. Wow, if we were ever accused of that, it is now. Paul, he's just described our society. I don't like to necessarily pick on other teachers or fellowships. It's counterproductive. But I feel I have to say this. The largest Christian church in America. They meet in a basketball arena in Texas. They're on TV all the time. And to me, Paul has just described them. Because the people that attend there have itching ears. They heap up for themselves, meaning they flock to those who turn their ears of understanding away from the truth and turn them aside to fables and vain philosophies. One of the good things that I look upon in my life is I became a pastor late in life. I was over 50 before I became a pastor. Just 
you know, it shows more than me just being slow. I, <laughs> I went through some things. But there's one good thing that come about me becoming a pastor later. I'm too old to be impressed by man. You know. <laughs> and neither will I try to impress you with me. I had to settle the issue of being a man pleaser years and years ago. When I was first asked to do a Bible study, uh, I was a nervous wreck. Uh, I didn't enjoy public speaking. I didn't enjoy being uh, in front of people. And I was an emotional wreck, to say the least. But I got through that first one, and guess what? There was another one coming the following week. Same, same symptoms. I'm upset. <laughs> and so I begin to cry out to God. If you want me to be a teacher, we, we got to have some resolution here because I can't continue to do this. And I cried out for God to help me. And God heard me. And he answered my plea. In God's own way, very vividly, God spoke to me. And he told me why I was extremely nervous. And it was because I was a man pleaser. And I was worried about how I would look as a teacher. That's very humbling, by the way. So from the very beginning of my illustrious teaching career, God has been gracious to show me I needed to please him, not man. And honestly, I try to do that each and every week. Pleasing God is a great liberator for any teacher. We have a man in our fellowship, and he will ask me when we lose a person to another fellowship or they move away, and he will say something to me along the lines of, well done. Who did you chase off this week? Thanks. <laughs> and I wish and I pray for us to be a fellowship that grows and prospers and so forth. But I also know I have a responsibility before God, not before you, before God, to teach his word. Verse 5, Paul continues. He says, be watchful, be alert, be on guard for apostasy. Or an apostasy is simply a turning away from the truth of God's word. And then he says, endure affliction. Now, why did Paul have to write that? <laughs> I'm not big on affliction. <laughs> I'm not fond of it whatsoever. I like a smooth, flowing ministry. I work to get my ducks in a row. And that can be contrary to God's spirit. When we organize to the point of removing God, then we've organized too much. But Paul challenges us all to be faithful to do the work of an evangelist. And he says, thus fulfilling your ministry. 
we are to always be ready to introduce Jesus to this dying, sinful world. It's that simple. Doing the work of an evangelist is not necessarily doing an altar call each and every week. In fact, study that one sometimes. We do not see altar calls being made in the New Testament. Rather, we hear the disciples giving persuasive sermons. We hear people crying out to Paul and to Peter and to John, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells them, believe and be baptized. There you are. Believe and be baptized. In my humble opinion, being evangelist is presenting the good news of Jesus and then getting out of the way of what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do. I've been a pastor almost 17 years, and guess what? I haven't saved one person yet. That's the work of the Lord. So this morning, if you desire to become a Christian, we'll have people in the prayer room back there that would be happy to pray with you about salvation or any other need in your life be a great way to start the new year, wouldn't it? Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness over this past year. We cannot enter into a new year without giving you thanks for watching over us and taking care of us for the past year. You are faithful, Lord. You are good to us. And Lord, uh, we just pray that this coming year would be a year where we find ourselves just following close after you. We desire that intimate fellowship between yourself and us, Lord. We desire to be all that you want us to be. We desire to do the work of an evangelist. We desire to have your scripture transform us into righteousness. We desire these things, Lord. We know you've given us your word. We want to be faithful to study your word. So, Lord, just put that love and desire in our hearts to be men and women of your word. Lord, we ask for this and we pray for this. Again, we just thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.